0: All right, hey, grab your Bibles, open them on up to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And then once you find that, keep a finger there and just flop over to Luke 19. Genesis 6, Luke 19. While you do that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. Father in heaven, we want to Stop. And acknowledge that you are in charge of everything. And because you are in charge of everything, what you say matters a whole lot. And you've spoken. (laughs) You you didn't leave us in the dark. You, You didn't leave us to guess. God, you've given us Your word, your Holy Spirit has animated um, this word that we hold in our hands and we know that it is trustworthy, that it is inerrant, that it is your um, decided revelation, what you want us to know, um, the, the amount of information that you want us to be aware of. And so God, this morning, we want to give our attention fully to it because it deserves it. God, we listen to news streams and social media streams and Twitter streams all week long, and we have to question, is this true, is this not, is this a lie, is this real, is this an opinion? What we hold in our hands this morning is true, and we affirm that. We don't have to question that. So God, may we hang on every word, may we open every page, may we look at every verse, may we look at every line, may we expose the truth of this scripture. This isn't about what I have to say this morning, this is about what you have said. God, what do you want to teach us this morning from your word? Help us to get the passage right. Help us to be good exegetes, Lord, to reveal what the scripture says and then conform our lives to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, God is in the business of saving. Amen. Uh, he's, He's really good at it. It's kind of his thing. I think he actually invented, I think, I think that was like his idea, salvation, right? Um, in, Luke, in Luke 19, uh, and we'll, we'll get there in one second, you know, God, not only does God save, he, he saves uh, meticulously, he saves with a plan, he saves with a process, um, and he saves using people as part of his plan. And what I love about God and the way that he saves is <clears throat> rather than going and invent new material in order to, to create a salvation plan, he uses the stuff laying around. He uses the, the stuff that we would kind of consider garbage, and, and he picks, his, picks it up and he uses it. You ever seen the movie Castaway? Tom Hanks, you know, he's stuck on an island. Great movie. Okay. Um, talking to a volleyball. It's, it's awesome. Wilson. And in, in this movie, he doesn't really have a whole lot of materials to work with, but he's trying to build a raft. So he takes all of these FedEx packages and opens all up, and he uses everything in the FedEx package in order to fashion this craft, and he's waiting for this last piece, and finally, I think it's the side of an outhouse. It it, it washes up on the shore, and he's so excited. That'll work, right? He takes an outhouse, and he turns it into a sail, and he ends up saving himself, right? That's kind of like God. I'm not saying Tom Tom Hanks is God, okay? Uh, Far from, but it's kind of like God. When God decides he's going to save. He doesn't go fashion new material. He takes the stuff laying around, the stuff that you and I would say is garbage, or it's useless, or it's not really um, the right material. And he says, no, actually, I'm going to use that. And I'm going to build a salvation plan out of that stuff. So in Zechariah, in in Luke, okay, we hear the story about Zacchaeus. There it is. Uh, Zechariah. Luke 19, I'm just going to read it really quick. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. Just Luke 19, 1. Jesus entered Jericho, was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. You all know this story. You learned it in Sunday school. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, okay? He was a chief tax collector and was rich, okay? And I'm just going to make it brief. What that means is everyone hated Zacchaeus. Do you understand? Okay, everyone hates him. He's not liked. And he's rich, which then you hate him twice as much, right? Okay, because they hated him because you ripped him off. He hated him because he was basically a stooge for the Roman government. He was a Jewish sellout. And all the Jews knew it, and they despised him. So he was the last person in town you would pick. He was the least person in town you would pick because he was short. Okay, he was a nobody. He was a nothing. He's despised. Verse 3, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. That's an act of faith right there. So he hears Jesus coming into town. On account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and what? Climbed up a sycamore tree to see him. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. Now notice what Jesus says. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Interesting way to say it, isn't it? I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone into the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. In other words, Jesus, I'm a faithful person. I've actually made faith decisions. And I've proved it with my finances and with restoring people that I've ripped off. And Jesus said to him, listen, today salvation has come to this house. He is a son of Abraham, which is a slap in the face to the Pharisees. Because he's saying, you guys are actually not a child of God. And this little sinner is. He is. You can imagine Zacchaeus just kind of cracking a smile like, whoa. I am the true son of Abraham. And then listen to this, this famous statement. Jesus says, for the son of man, listen, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. What does God do? He saves. And how does he do it? He does it by using the broken and rejected material that's around him, like Zacchaeus. He marches right past the important people. He looks up in a tree and he sees the material he wants to build his saving plan out of a little man who everybody hated, Zacchaeus. Okay? My, my point is simply this. God uses the despised things. God uses the common things in order to accomplish his saving plan. Listen to what Paul said, 1 Corinthians one twenty six: "'For consider your calling, brothers. Not many, of you, "'Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards.'" In other words, you guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. In other words, you're a bunch of blue-collar nobodies. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is how God saves. He takes the least things and uses them. He uses them to construct a means of salvation. So in the case of the cross, what did God do? He took a common person, fully God, fully man, a carpenter from Nazareth, a nobody town. And he used some wood and he used the anger and the jealousy and the rage of religious hypocrites in order to put him on a cross. He used the uh, murder system of the Roman government in order to accomplish the atonement for the bride of Christ that you and I are now enjoying. What did he do? He used common things in order to accomplish salvation. And then Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to animate more common things. He takes an ex-Pharisee. He takes a tax collector. He takes sinners. He takes prostitutes. He takes all of the common people and he fashions them into a living body that will go out and bring the gospel to the whole world. And in our passage today, God takes some wood and he takes some water and he takes a man and he takes 120 years of that man's life And he fashions a way of salvation. What a good God. He saves using the common things. He saves using the practical things. Today we're going to look at the flood material. We're going to start dissecting the flood material. And we're going to be in the flood for probably three or four sermons. And we'll take a break for Easter and we'll come back to it. But today we're going to launch into the flood material. Genesis gives about three or four chapters to the flood material. And I just will say this. It's really important material in the Bible. It's important enough that we need to take our time through it, pick our way through, it, ask big questions about it. One commentator says the flood material forms a bridge between the shadowy past before the flood and the comprehensive era of the fathers following the deluge. So the, the, the flood is like this turning point in the, in the scripture between what we might call the prehistoric world, the shadowy, mysterious world uh, where we learned about the Nephilim and the sons of God uh, and Enoch and, and all of these um, prehistoric figures into the next part of Genesis, which we aren't going to get to, um, is Abraham. In the patriarchal period. So the flood is, it's immensely important, okay? And why is it important? Let me just, just note a few things about the flood material really quick. First of all, the reality of the flood event is way more serious than you think it is. I have to do some deconstructing here because when I say flood, what do you picture? Rainbow, flannel graph, dove, cute little boat on the flannel graph, floating on flannel... Was I the only one that went to Sunday school? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, you guys, like, maybe you guys didn't grow up in the church, but the flood, it's like the ultimate cute nursery. Like how many nurseries have been painted to look like the flood? Oh, it's so cute. Okay, I got to break that down for a minute. Okay, let me just break that down for a minute. Reality check. The flood is universal judgment. God drowns every living thing in the world at once. It's gnarly. It's crazy. God is stripping the world down to the studs. You ever get mold in your house? And then you realize the mold has gotten so deep that you literally have to pull the drywall off? The patient has cancer and literally as much of it has to be, like chemo is released. The body is, is attacked in order to kill this cancer because it is metastasized. God is cutting Deep. He is deconstructing and decreating everything that he has just created uh, in Genesis up to this point. This is insane. This is crazy. We can't. We can't let this be a cute thing in our head. It's a beautiful thing, and we're right to teach our kids about it. But in reality, it is a astounding thing that God drowned the world. And we have to ask: drowned, drowned? It. We have to ask hard on all you grammar people out there. Just. Ready, ready to get me? My mom's on the live stream right now. She's going to tell me about it. Hey, you said drowned it. Okay. Uh, we have to think about it correctly. We have to get the, the flood material draws us backward to a very somber sentence that God said. Do you remember what it was? He told Adam and Eve, if you eat of it, you shall what? As Noah is looking out and seeing the entire face of the earth covered in water, knowing that every living thing has now died. It is the ultimate realization of God's warning to Adam and Eve of the result of eating the fruit. Death. And let me just make this really clear. Sin equals death universally. It does. God judges. So the, the, the Noah material draws us backward. It also draws us downward. It causes us to look at the world that we're living in right now and go, wow, God will not tolerate this forever. It causes us to look Forward in dread, realizing that God will once again judge the earth. I hope you weren't expecting a super happy light sermon this morning because it's not that week. It also draws us forward to think about the fact that God is a saving God and He is a God of hope, and there is always a Noah when there's a flood. There's always an ark when there's a flood. Amen? Let's dive into it. Today we're going to look at the first part. Of the Noah material, we're going to look at the second half of chapter 6 and the first few verses of chapter 7. Basically, what we're going to look at this morning is God's revelation to Noah of what he's going to do to the world and why he's going to do it, as well as how he's going to save the world. Breaks down into three really easy sections if you want to write them down, if you're a note taker or an outline person. Number one, God's decree of condemnation. Number two, God's plan of salvation. Yep, they all rhyme. You're welcome. Three, God's pattern of collaboration. God's degree of condemnation. Keith's back there watching the live stream. I can hear myself. God's plan of salvation. Well, I'm right here, bro. You don't got to watch me on the screen. I'm right here. You're like a millennial, dude. I'd rather watch your phone. I love you, bro. I love you, man. Okay. God's decree of condemnation, God's plan of salvation, God's pattern of collaboration. Let's get into it. Number one, God's decree of condemnation. Look at verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. That's the author signaling a new narrative section here. Remember, in chapter 5, it says these are the generations of Seth. This is the generations now of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So what verse 9 and 10 are teaching us is something about Noah, this person that God selects. We learn three things about Noah. First, we learn that he's a righteous and blameless man in his generation. That doesn't mean he's sinless, but it does mean that he was a man that oriented his life around the word of God rather than the word of his culture. Similar to the call in the New Testament for elders to be blameless, it doesn't mean they don't have sin, but it does mean that they live their life in such a way that no one can lay a blame at their feet. So Noah is a godly man. He's righteous in his generation. Secondly, we learn that Noah walked with God. What that means is he had a relationship with God. He wasn't just a staunch religious person. He wasn't just a moral person. He walked with God. And it, by the way, may have meant that he actually walked physically with God. It's very likely there was much more of an open interface at this time between the spiritual and the physical dimensions. And and it may very well be that Noah, like Enoch, actually, literally walked with God. How cool would that be? And you say, man, if God was walking around, how come everybody was rebelling? Well, that's how bad sin is. If you believe in a true uh, millennial reign, that Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years here physically on earth, you know what's going to happen at the end of that? Everyone's going to try to go to war with him. You say, well, if Jesus is here physically reigning, why would anybody go to war with him? Well, that's how bad sin is. It cannot be tolerated. It cannot be allowed. The third thing we learn about Noah is that he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And you say, why is that important? It's important because the, the, the author of Genesis has been trying to see it, uh, get us to see the importance of the preservation. Listen, the preservation of the Imago day. Do you remember what that was? It is the fact that humans were created in the image of God. And if you remember last week's teaching, Ryan did a great job of showing us how the image of God was being actually tainted and tarnished. Because spiritual beings, I know this sounds weird, but spiritual beings were literally procreating with physical beings creating some kind of a weird half-breed. And what was the proto-euangelion? What was the first good news that God said that from the seed of Eve, human, would come the one that would crush the head of the snake? So in order for God to preserve his plan of salvation, this seed of Eve has to be preserved. It may very well be, and I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, just warning, it may very well be that Noah was the last human on earth that had a fully human set of DNA, That could preserve God's redemptive plan to bring Christ fully God, fully man, in order to atone for the sins of his bride. Interesting, isn't it? So Shem, Ham, and Japheth matter. And it seems interesting that God says right when he has these kids, he says, okay, now it's time to build the boat. Now it's time to build the ark. It's time to preserve what's left. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. You know, God sees it all. God sees the dark web. God sees your history. God sees the millions and billions of dollars that people are spending on pornography. He sees it all. He sees every abortion. He sees every abuse. He sees every word. He hears every word. He hears every thought. He sees every thought. He sees it all. Every ounce of sin, God sees it. Remember when, he, uh, remember when Cain killed Abel and he says, Cain, your brother's blood is crying out to me day and night. Imagine what God. Imagine the concert of immorality that God is hearing right now, in this moment. Imagine. He sees it all. He's not a coward. He doesn't turn his TV off. He doesn't turn off his hearing aid. He tunes in to every single thing and every single cry of every single injustice, every single sin against every single human that's ever existed. And he keeps track. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. I want you to note that word filled. You say, why is that important? Go back a couple pages to chapter 1 and look at this word filled in chapter 1, verse 28. Now, this is before sin entered. This is before things got crazy. We call this the cultural mandate. God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful, multiply, and what? Fill the earth. Fill the earth with what? Fill the earth with God's glory, with God's image, with God's goodness, with God's um, shalom reign, with God's grace throughout the earth. That was his plan. That's why he made Abba and Eve to fill and to to, to bless the earth with the presence of humans that were representative of his reign and his rule. And instead, now here we see God looking at the earth, and he sees it filled with what? Violence. Violence is the archetypical sin Against the nature of God, because violence destroys the very thing that was meant to reflect God's nature. That's why Cain killing Abel was such a big deal. When you kill a human, it's a sin against the nature of God. It's a big deal. So God looks at the earth and he sees it filled not with his peace and his reign and his glory and his image and his goodness, instead, he sees it filled with violence. And then he says, he declares it, Behold, I will destroy them. Pardon me, I skipped ahead. He saw the earth, behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. I want you to see this. All flesh had corrupted. All flesh. All flesh had corrupted their way. They're morally responsible. They are corrupting their way. Wait, 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 Sam. That's, I mean, we're corrupted by our surroundings. We're all basically good people. We're born good, and then we come out, and then we're corrupted by our evil parents, Right? They corrupted their ways. They are morally responsible. You are morally responsible for your sin. You cannot blame your parents, even if your shrink tells you you can. You are responsible for your sin. We are responsible for our sin. They corrupted their way on earth. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, now notice that God is revealing to Noah his thoughts. This is one of the coolest things about being a believer. This thing you're holding in your hand right here, this is God revealing his thoughts to you. Why? Because you're his kids. Because you have said yes to listening to him. And that's one of the coolest things about being a Christian, that God tells us what he's thinking. That's why we spend 45 minutes, God willing, every Sunday looking at what God said, because he tells us what he's doing. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. These are sobering words. And I'll tell you what, when God says he's going to do something, he does it. His word and his actions are synonymous. If he says he's going to do something, it's as good as done. So he shares, he reveals with Noah the fact that he is going to drown the whole world. Now, I want you to get one very important thing in this, in this section. Okay, number one, God God will judge all sin period. God will judge all sin, period. And there's some things that we need to get clear about judgment because uh, us Western evangelical Americans, we love to get God's judgment all messed up because it's just not very woke and it's not, it's not very kind to us and it's not very inclusive and it's not very universalistic and it's not very all the things that our culture is telling us are really important right now. So we just kind of squirm when we talk about God's judgment, but we really ought not to, okay? Here's some things you need to understand about God's judgment. First of all, uh, we don't think about it enough. We just don't. We like to talk about the grace of God. I like to talk about the grace of God. But here's the reality. You don't get the grace without the judgment. You know why the grace of God is good news? Because the judgment of God is a reality. If it weren't for the judgment of God, we wouldn't need the grace of God. So you can talk about the grace of God, but if you don't get to the judgment of God, the grace of God is really not good news. Your house is burning down and a fireman kicks the door open and you don't believe that your house is burning down, that news is not good to you at all. The reality is is that judgment and mercy come at the same time. They come in parallel. God is both decreeing that he will judge while he's simultaneously saying that he will save. And we have to swallow both pills. The second thing you need to understand about judgment is that we misplace our ultimate concern for humanity. And what I mean by that is that we like to think of humanity as some um, neutral entity that's just sort of a slave to sin and, 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 a, and a, um, uh, an offended party in uh, sin and death is, is really just the enemy. Can, can, I, can I clear up all that for you? And you're not going to like this. We're not saving sinners from sin. We're not saving sinners from hell. We're not saving sinners from sickness and death. We're saving sinners from God. Amen. I know you all don't like that. That's what the Bible says. We are saving sinners from a just, holy, righteous, wrathful God that must punish sin. If he doesn't punish sin, he's not good. And there, guys, why am I being so serious about this? Because there are preachers in our community right now that are saying, God didn't punish Jesus, he just forgave sin and Jesus didn't accomplish forgiveness from God, that's child abuse. God can forgive sin whenever he wants. When Jesus died on the cross, he just died as a symbol, as a reminder. He died to defeat sickness, and he died, so just have enough faith, and you'll never be sick, and he died to defeat uh, sin, but this wasn't some kind of Jesus appeasing the wrath of God. That's ancient, evil thinking. No, that's the gospel. What Jesus did on the cross was a contractual appeasement of the wrath of a righteous father. Romans says that God became both the just and the justifier. That means that he didn't forsake or compromise on his sake of justice. If God just forgives sins, he's not just. God doesn't just forgive sins, he pays for them. Sins are paid. Sam, why does that matter? Why is it a big deal? Because we are selling a gospel that's not effectual when we tell people that they are just a poor victim to a sinful culture. No, they are an offender of a righteous, holy God and they need to be forgiven by the payment of the cross. It's really important, guys. That's what gets people saved. When I repented, when I got saved, what happened was I was no longer under the wrath of God. I became a child of God. That's really good news. You know that message is going to get less and less and less popular. It just is. It's just it's just not culturally relevant. What is culturally re- relevant to say is you know God's just a big mushy universal universalistic Oprah Winfrey looking God. He might not even be a man. He was a big black woman. You know that's that's what the, the Shaq said. Whatever. I, I, this is what happens when I get off script. Off script. If you've seen the shack, that's what they did. Okay, anyways. Ah, uh, shouldn't have said that. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. But maybe, maybe, maybe we should just reinvent God. Maybe we should make him a little bit more culturally relevant. Because he's just too angry and this judgment thing and drowning the world. And what about the Canaanite genocide? This is, just, this is just weird. The God I know, the God I feel is an inclusive God, a God that loves everybody no matter what they believe in. And, okay, uh, no. Absolutely not. Listen to this, okay? The God that saves... First 1 Timothy 2.5, 2, for there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. If there was another way, listen, this is so important, if there was another way of salvation, God would have done it. There isn't. Jesus, in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, terrified of the pummeling that was about to happen on the cross, not from men, but from a righteous God, said, Lord, if there is any other way, and what was the answer? There's no other way. There is one way of salvation. There is one answer to the hope for the lost world that we interact with every single day. And it's not good vibes, and it's not universalism, and it's not Buddha, and it's not Oprah Winfrey. It's Christ and what he has paid for and accomplished on the cross, okay? I don't think I need to keep beating the dead horse here, okay? My point is the gospel is the only way God saved. Don't change it. If you try to change it and make it more culturally relevant, you will ruin its efficacy. First thing we see is God's degree of condemnation. The second thing we see is God's plan of salvation. Here's where the news gets a little better. Verse 14, God says to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. I have no idea what gopher wood is. Nobody knows what gopher wood is. Have fun, figure that one out. Make rooms in the ark cover it inside and out with pitch this is how you are to make it why do you have them cover it with pitch so it doesn't sink wow that's really spiritual okay Uh, this is how you are to make it the length of the ark is 300 cubits its breadth 50 cubits its height 30 cubits Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark and its side, make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds, according to their kinds of the animals, according to their kinds of every creeping thing of the ground, according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten, store it up, it shall serve as food for you and for them. Question, why all that detail? Why does that matter to me? It's 2021. We have COVID going on. I mean, what, is there more important things that the Bible could be filling in here other than the details of how to build the boat? Let me suggest some things to you about the details that God just gives it. Details matter. And the Bible has a lot of details. If you've read the whole thing, you'll realize wow, there's a lot of details in here. God is a detailed God, He is a God of details. Okay, the, the first thing I want you to notice about the, 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 the meticulous and practical nature of God's um, plans here that he gives Noah about the ark is that they are detailed and they're thoughtful. He says, make a window. He says, make a door. He says, make the appropriate dimensions for a boat. It's, it's just practical. It's just very, he wants the boat to work, okay? It's provisional. He says, take extra clean animals. You notice he says that? Of every other animal, he says, take two of the clean animals. He says, take seven pairs. Why? Snack, (laughs) right? Yeah, snack. You ever seen Moana? He's like, I'm going to take the chicken on the boat so I can eat the chicken when he gets there. Um, Nobody watches that movie. Okay, that's that's the point. Okay, food uh, and sacrifice. Okay, God is provisional. He's thought this thing through. He comes to Noah with the blueprints, and you know Noah could have gone. You know, God, I think the boat should be a few cubits longer. And I think maybe we should have a few more animals just in case. You know, and I think maybe we shouldn't cover it in pitch. Maybe we should cover it in polyurethane, maybe a triple coat. You know, maybe it'd be a little better. And what would God say? He'd say, Noah, uh, I've thought this one through, bro. I got this. I, I, I know what I'm doing here, okay? Listen, God knows what he's doing when he saves. And he knows what he's doing when he reveals his plan of Salvation okay? Um, It's provisional. It's it's conservational. He's making sure that the animals survive. God is graciously allowing the animals, because the animals didn't sin. They're a victim. Creation didn't sin. It's a victim. God is sustaining and salvaging. He's torn it down to the studs, but he's not going to bulldoze the whole thing. He has a plan here to repopulate, recreate the earth with a new Adam named Noah. And so he preserves the animals on the boat. Also, I want you to notice, this plan of salvation is boring, isn't it? 120 years of making a boat. You know, when you think about being part of God's redemptive story, you think about these exciting, I'm going to go this and that, and then some of us have a boring life, and we go, I must not be doing anything for the Lord. Noah spent 120 years pounding nails. Might have been tying ropes, I don't know. Covering in pitch. Can you imagine how boring some of those days would have been? sun up to sunrise. The menial things. God saves through the menial things. He saves through the seemingly boring things. The other thing I want you to notice is how physical this job is. You know, we think physical things are not spiritual. That's not true. Anything that is given over to the Lord is spiritual. Every single physical thing, every single callus, every single blister, every single sore back, every single sore muscle that Noah would have had in the morning when he got up to go build the boat was spiritual. Because it was given and consecrated to God. I just want to remind you guys, all the little things, all the menial things, all the seemingly pointless things, all the little, uh, I have a sore back from this, I have a sore blister from that all of that, if given to God, is spiritual. Isn't that good news? But here's the main thing I want you to get about the details of the ark. The main thing I want you to get is that the way God built the boat worked. It was effectual. It worked. It was effective. God's point in building the boat was not to have a cool idea, to draw it out on a whiteboard and then have it go nowhere. Like, I do that all the time. Just ask Cody. We're like sitting there on Monday morning like, we could do this, and then we'll we'll never do it, right? That's not how God rolls. When God rolls a plan out, he does it. He's thought through the details. He's thought through the cost. He's thought through the plan. He's thought through the timeline. He's thought through the budget. It's all locked in. And when he reveals it to Noah, all Noah has to do is go, okay, God, you thought through the details. You know, something really amazing happened before creation. God, within the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they had a conversation. And they invented something called salvation. New Testament tells us this. It says that within the wisdom of God, God's wisdom, he hatched the idea of salvation. And every member of the Trinity has a different part. And they planned it all out. They planned it all according to plan. They said, this is exactly how we can save humanity from sin. We don't, know when, we don't know where evil came from. The Bible doesn't say. It was clearly there when God created. But when God created, he knew that there was something that was inevitable, and that was that evil was going to enter the garden. And so he hatched the ultimate plan. Of salvation, The ultimate plan looked like this, that he, God the Father, would send God the Son, and God the Son would become a fully man, fully God, in order to atone for men, in order to be able to conquer death, would crush the head of the snake. He knew when Jesus had to come, how Jesus had to come, what Jesus had to do, the day, the second, the hour that Jesus had to die, the way in which Jesus had to die in order to fulfill all of Scripture. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22 said how he was going to die. He had to be the Passover lamb, die on Passover over. He had to to recruit his disciples, send the Holy Spirit, resurrect from the dead, ascend to the right hand of the Father, become a mediator. Every second of this world that we have lived in has existed, moving us towards the cross and moving us towards the resurrection and the triumph of Christ. God detailed his plan of salvation perfectly. Couldn't have been any more perfect. From before the foundations of the earth, God has been planning and working towards salvation, even before the fall. Isn't that amazing? Do you understand how much work went into the gospel that you believe? <laughs> you understand how much thought went into the salvation? I mean, for Noah, it was some blueprints of a boat. For you, it's an, it's an eternal, cosmic, Trinitarian reality that you're part of. What an amazing Thing. My my application point on this: don't change the plan. I know you think you're clever. Don't try to help God. Don't 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 open the Bible and say you know that. I don't think he meant that. That's just that's a little no. He meant it. Jesus meant every word he said. You may be misunderstanding what he said. He didn't. He doesn't make us guess. The good news is. And I'm getting ahead of myself here. The good news is is it's not your job to build the boat. The boat's already been built, right? It's your job to get on. And then don't decide that maybe you should build a more inclusive boat, a boat that isn't so narrow. Okay, get on the right boat. Get on the right boat. Number three, God's pattern of of collaboration. I want you to see this and then we'll close. Verse 22 Three important words. Are you ready? Three important words. Noah did this. What did he do? Exactly what God said to do. You know what that's called? Faith. Faith being seen by your actions. Don't make the mistake of over-separating your actions and your faith. Your actions reveal your faith. That's what James says, right? I will show you my faith by my works. Noah shows his faith because he says, okay, God, I'm going to do what you said. I'm going to build the boat the way you said to build the boat. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. You know what that is? Salvation. Salvation by faith. How did Noah get saved? He got on the boat. He believed God. He got on the boat, right? It's very simple you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me. And this generation take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and the pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, seven pairs of birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And listen, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded it's very simple we are saved by grace alone through faith alone it's very simple we are saved because of God's favor now I don't want you to miss this Ryan covered it last week but before it gets to anything about the righteousness of Noah or anything like that you know what you find in verse 8 Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord salvation starts with favor God shows favor. God extends grace. And through faith, we are saved. It's a beautiful reality. Um, I don't have to try to sell you on the fact that this is what this passage is trying to tell us because the New Testament actually tells you that. The New Testament actually gives us commentary on what exactly the flood is supposed to be a reminder of us, a reminder for us of. It tells us. Uh, It tells us in Peter that the ark is literally a picture of Christ. The true ark, the true salvation. It's very simple. When you look at the cute little boat on the flannel graph, I want you to think about two things. I want you to think about the sobering reality that God is just and he hears every cry of injustice. And he will judge. He has judged, he is judging, he will judge. I also want you to think about the fact that God has created another ark, and that ark is named Jesus, and by faith you get on the ark. <laughs> and If you don't get on the ark, I'm not trying to go all crazy end times on you, but read the end of the book. Here's what happens. Revelation 6, the sky vanished like a scroll. is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place this is in the future then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountain who are they hiding from? who are they hiding from? yeah I thought he was really nice he is really nice he is really nice he's also very just (laughs) calling to the listen to this these guys are calling to the mountains fall on us Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Can you imagine being so terrified that you call out to a cliff to fall on you in order to hide you? The sobering words of the book of Hebrews, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We are appealing to the lost to be saved from the wrath of God. And the cross is the payment that is necessary for the wrath of God. The ark is meant to be a clear reminder to us of God's judgment and God's salvation. But here's one more thing to think about. Faith faith gave Noah access to salvation it also gave Noah access to something else. It gave him access to collaboration. And this is the beauty of faith, you know. um, The gospel is not just believe and then be saved. The gospel is believe, be saved, and then be translated into this amazing mission. By faith, Noah was not only granted the ability to be saved, he was granted the ability to be used for God's purposes. God uses the faithful for his purposes. He saves by grace. He uses those that are faithful. The New Testament makes that pretty clear. You want to be used by God, be faithful. Step into what he's doing. Noah not only was saved, he became a conduit of God's grace. I named this sermon Vessels of Grace. Yes, it's a play on words. Vessel, boat, you get it? Okay, vessels of grace. Um, I want you to think of yourself as vessels of grace. Now, you're not Christ. You're not the gospel. You're not the good news. The gospel is what Christ did, but you can be a vessel of that grace to a lost and dying world that God's wrath is literally right now abiding on. You can be that conduit. You can be that conduit. I love 2 Corinthians 5.19. That is in Christ, Paul says, God was reconciling the world to himself. Reconciling the world. Not away from Satan, not away from darkness. Those are true too. But God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Listen. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We become conduits of God's grace, vessels of God's grace, when by faith we say, yes, Lord, I see your redemptive plan, I see what you're doing, I see how you're saving, I say yes to your plan, and now, like Noah, I want to be the conduit of your grace extended to the world. What a gracious thing that God did not just destroy the world when when he flooded it. Now, we know the sobering reality that him saving Noah was basically not cutting deep enough because as soon as Noah gets off the boat, he gets stone drunk, ends up face down in his tent, makes a fool of himself. Sin had found its way onto the ark. God pumped radiation into the patient. The patient still had cancer. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ is the final radiation. And he's not the final radiation... He's a brand new species of humanity. He's a brand new thing. There is no sin in God's future creation. Because God is not only going to purify the world, He is rebirthing His creation through the final Adam, the final Noah, the final Abraham, the final David, Jesus, who is the firstborn of many to come. Isn't this cool? We have so much hope. You know, I know that we watch the news and we think, you know, if we could just pass this litigation or pass that thing, or it would fix things, but it just doesn't. God washed the whole world and it was still dirty when it came out. It needs more than washing. My friend John, who's here, pointed a really made a really good point to me the other day about this. I thought it was really good. He said, you know, it's really cool when you think about what happened to the early church, the Holy Spirit being poured out on the world, and the gospel going to all nations. It was the second flood. But it wasn't a flood of judgment. It was a flood, the springs of the deep of the living God, the Holy Spirit, the living water being let loose on this world. And so yes, there's judgment coming, but there is also through you guys, through the conduits of God's living water, you drown the world in the Holy Spirit, man. And that's why we're here. That's why we're planting in this church. That's why we're every day living for Christ, warning the world of the judgment to come simultaneously, being on the boat and inviting those to get on. Very simple application. So my point for you this morning, just some take-homes. God saved, God saving, God saves. He's a saving God. He's really good at it. And he saves using the things laying around, like me, the least of these. He's a saving God. He's also a judging God. And judgment is coming. It's coming. It has to come. You know, if you take if you take a line and you and you've used this analogy before, if you take a line and you make it about 0.001 degree off, it's not a big deal. You carry that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. That's a pretty big off. <laughs> this world is off. And it doesn't matter how much reform or political correction or whatever happens, at the end of the day, this world is off. And it will come to an end in the way that it is now. It's coming. So we preach the good news, we preach the gospel we realize that the world is much worse than you think it is. I know we think people are basically good, they're not. The world is really bad. We know the plan, we preach the plan, we don't change the plan, and we see the divine handprint working in the common and everyday things of life. We recognize that God had to call Zacchaeus out of the tree because he was the plank that he wanted to build his plan of salvation through. And recognize that you guys are part of that when you step into it by faith, amen? I'm gonna invite the team back up. We're gonna end with one song, and while they come up, I'm gonna pray. Father, thank you this morning for these sobering realities. God, I pray that I spoke them with the right tone. Lord, your tone. I just pray, Father, that we would have a sobering understanding of what is coming, but also just a joyous understanding of the relief that has come because of the cross that Jesus, you have saved us from justice, the, the justice we deserve. Lord, I am a sinner.